The Inksa Horizons podcast. Conversations at the intersection of science, society, and public policy. Welcome to the Horizons podcast. I'm Christiane Allen. One of the key lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic has been that chemistry, biology, immunology, and a host of other ologies could tell us what we needed to know about the pathogen and its response to certain compounds. But the pandemic? Well, we're still trying to stop it in its tracks. That's because knowing the structure of the virus is only part of the story. It doesn't tell us anything about the human element driving the contagion. And without understanding the interpersonal dynamics, values, and unpredictability of key players, we're only working with half the information we need. The same applies to all of our shared global challenges. From climate change to pollution to raging inequality, only by understanding and engaging with the interdependent human and societal factors of the challenges we face, are we going to have any hope in mitigating them? While most science disciplines once considered themselves a values-free zone, a new generation of knowledge producers and knowledge brokers are realizing that values are an integral part of the picture, and they have an impact on what constitutes robust evidence. In this vital work, the social sciences, arts, and humanities are key to helping map our collective path to an equitable and prosperous future. To begin to pick apart this challenging topic, we've invited Professor Stephen Hoffman, Director of the Global Strategy Lab in Canada, Professor Elizabeth Helin, Senior Researcher at CONICET in Argentina, Dr. Montira Ponsiri, Climate Change and Health Advisor for Save the Children and a Council Member for the Southeast Asian Science Advice Network, and Professor Ilona Otto, Professor of Societal Impacts of Climate Change at the Wegener Center for Climate and Global Change at the University of Graz. Kicking off the conversation is Dr. Jean Labelle, President of the International Development Research Center. This panel was recorded at the INSA 2021 conference. Here's Dr. Labelle. I'm quite fortunate to have an esteemed group of people with Elizabeth Montira, Stephen, and Yona that are joining us from Buenos Aires, Elizabeth Montira in Washington, Stephen in Toronto, and Yona in Graz, Austria. Discussion we're having today, I think, is very timely. We have seen the COVID-19 pandemic as a matter in the sky, so to speak, that has captured the world's attention and still keeps it very alive. At the same time, we have, you know, global issue like climate change that has been slow burning, but now that is becoming fast burning as we all see it on a daily basis. So what is the role of social science in mitigating these challenges and responding to their effects? This is at the core of our focus today, and I thank INSA for convening this important conversation. IDRC and INSA have a long history of collaborating, particularly in bringing the research that originates from the global south at the forefront and showing that can be used effectively to develop and implement sound policies. The COVID-19 pandemic has deepened our collaboration as we study pandemic policy responses and the use of science in low and middle income countries. The lesson we learn will shape responses to future emergency because there will be future emergency, create new ways of sharing information and make science advice system far more resilient. 
The breakneck speed at which the science and policy community are advancing in response to COVID-19 is changing how science is conducted, applied, communicated, and perceived, and we don't have to elaborate on this. It's part of your daily living. These changes mean that now more than ever, strong, effective science advice mechanisms are needed to identify and mitigate challenges with which science is communicated to the public and also to decision makers and how science advice should influence policies and behavior. With this fast evolving environment, it's critical to identify the lesson learned, strengthen resilience and improve our preparedness. And this is why we are here today with our esteemed colleague. They have prepared several viewpoints that you can read in the conference compendium if you have not already done so, I encourage you to do so. It's short, it's to the point. And I'm also encouraging you to send your question via the chat box. We will integrate them into our conversation. We have 45 minutes together. We are now a year and a half in the global pandemics. Governments are pursuing measures to control both the virus and manage the socioeconomic impacts of these measures. And my first question to the panelists will be to share an example of mechanism that integrates social science and the humanities into government decision-making. And I'll start with Elizabeth Jelen. Elizabeth, social science have lots to offer and how to intervene in complex scenario, especially understanding and managing inequality. Can you start and give us some example of this? Up to you, Elizabeth, and thank you everyone for being with us. Thank you for the invitation and for the challenge of participating in this panel. The example is not an example, it's a global phenomenon. When the pandemic began, the idea, the main advice for everyday practices of people was stay at home and wash your hands. This did not take into account the reality of a large part of the world population that due to the global inequalities, multiple inequalities, do not have access to running water and do not have proper living quarters to stay at home, including the idea of home as the idea that people live in family homes. And this was not the case. So I think that social science could have warned saying, this is not the only advice to be given. We have to consider living conditions of many different types of people and not give one global uniform advice to everybody. Thank you, Elizabeth. You know, one key learning over here, you know, global blanket approach, silver bullet, you know, are always perilous because situations are different in different setting and needs to be considered to be effective. Thank you very much. Mantira, you know, you're an environmental health scientist. You have devoted a lot of your time to climate change and health issue. Looking at mechanism that integrates social sciences into government decision making, what does your work show and how can look ahead on situation where there are multiple stressor and their interaction? Thank you, Jean. Maybe in the context of the SDGs, let me first start by saying that because there is flexibility in the means of implementation to meet the SDG targets, that this presents an opening or an opportunity to take an integrated approach, for example, in climate and health, in the way that we collect data on climate and health and use that data in policy tools. 
for monitoring trends to assess vulnerability, to quantify benefits of acting on climate for health and costing of not acting. And at the same time for evaluating different policy choices that we have to make to address climate for health. So I think that the way that we conceptualize a problem leads to how we can address it and build a supporting narrative. For example, I think climate change and health is a climate health and equity issue. Climate change, health and equity have to be addressed together. And this requires the integration of data across disciplines, environment, health, and social sciences to be able to produce knowledge products that can improve our understanding, support vulnerability assessments, and inform targeted actions, particularly for the most vulnerable populations. And I think there are three main barriers to addressing health, climate, and equity together that social scientists can play a critical role in helping to overcome. First, I think there's insufficient understanding of the multi-sectoral impacts of an interconnections between climate change, human activities, and health, as well as the social determinants which contribute to it. Social scientists can add to this understanding how and why there are disparities in health, how and why some groups are more vulnerable, and what are the consequences for health and society if these disparities are not addressed. The second barrier to address climate health and equity together is the inadequate recognition of addressing climate for health benefits, as well as the inadequate capacity for evaluating these win-win strategies for policy planning. I think social scientists can help evaluate the economic benefits of acting on climate for health. And these kinds of quantified data could increase the visibility of climate change for health, as well as increase the visibility for these issues among ministries of health, environment, and finance. And this is going to be important also, that visibility for the public interest. The third barrier to addressing health, climate, and equity together as one issue is the siloed policy actions that we're all aware of, where there's limited interaction and consensus seeking among relevant ministries and sectors. So social scientists can help us to better understand what are the enabling conditions for cross-sectoral cooperation and policy coordination that are needed to take action on climate for health and health equity benefits. What's at stake here? It's that addressing the health impacts of climate change is critical because the climate adaptation and mitigation planning by countries can't ignore health. Doing so, could result in trade-offs and unintended consequences that ultimately could undermine health, especially for vulnerable populations. So social scientists can really play a role in helping us to address those barriers that I think are prominent in how we produce science for impact. And so there's a role that we can play together in not only addressing those foundations, but also in carrying out science and evaluating the implementation of science-based strategies. Thank you very much, Montira. 
we can start to see the density from the context to the uh, multi-sectoral impact to the evaluation of the cost and benefit towards implementable action. And I think that's a nice segue for Yona to join the conversation. Yona, how can mechanisms that integrate social sciences into decision-making help address a polarized world where there can be few opportunities for people to come together from their extremes to learn from one another and exchange? And I think your work is quite interesting in that vein. Please. Yes, exactly. That's a great question. And I think um, except this kind of like positivist um, attitude that, that we need to understand and analyze the data and provide this kind of no objective uh, knowledge. I think like the role of science is also to help to understand different uh, viewpoints and also men mental models that different groups of people uh, use to kind of explain the environment. And as you say, currently it's a problem that, that there's this, this kind of there's this kind of opinion polarization, that there are different social groups, also different groups of stakeholders that have like a completely different understanding of what is going on and they also uh, suggest different measures. And I think that's also a role of science and social scientists to try to understand those different viewpoints and also to build some bridges and try to connect those kind of different polarizing communities. Thanks, Yona. Can you give me an example, you know, and all this has translated in your work, you know, bridging those communities? Yes, uh, one example could be kind of not to understand what actually, what can we learn from now, from, from the corona and the pandemic impacts in terms of preparing for future challenges and future climate change impacts. So like in, as a part of my work, we uh, do interviews with different adaptation experts at uh, national level, but also at the city level. And also we talk with different business representatives and uh, we um, kind of you know, ask them how to prepare for this, what is uh, going to come in the future. And we uh, experiment with different kind of novel methods. Like for instance, in a few projects that, that I currently have, we use so-called tools of like social simulation tools. You know, so sort of like there are simulations of uh, possible catastrophes and you, you know, show some hypothetical scenario to decision makers or stakeholders and then you test you know, how they react to this. And this is like one tool where, where you kind of bring different groups of people together and uh, you show them some hypothetical scenario and then, and then you kind of analyze how they respond to this, what kind of measures they uh, prefer and then but it's not all. We also do those kind of interviews and, and we discuss with them and we try to understand like what kind of mental models they, they are using and what is kind of driving the decisions. So live experiment in the real world to provide real answer to real situation that are happening like with the coronavirus. Thank you very much, Yona. I think that's also a very nice segue to our last intervention in this first round from Stephen Hoffman. Stephen, you know, the Deputy Director General of United Nations, Amina Mohamed, asked you last year around this time, I remember, because we have been somehow partnering crimes uh, into this. You've run uh, really hard and fast, developed the UN Research Roadmap for the COVID-19 recovery. And this was developed to help ensure the pandemic's recovery is informed by the best available evidence and true global coordination. Tell me how can this roadmap support evidence-based decision-making? And can you share with us a few examples of its recommendation and how 
it has been implemented? Because it's almost a year now on the table. So Stephen, up to you. Great. First, uh, Jean, thanks so much for bringing us together. And, and a big thanks to INCSA for bringing attention to the social sciences and humanities by having a session like this. As a social scientist myself, uh, I think it's clear that uh, the work that social scientists and humanists do is so often not part of these conversations. So how important is it that there's sessions like this that bring it to attention? Uh, Jean, um, about the UN Research Roadmap for the COVID-19 Recovery, the process was initiated about a year ago. In her wisdom, the Deputy Secretary General invited a rigorous, systematic global effort to think about in a year from now, which is about now, what are the key knowledge needs that societies will have around the world in order to ensure a better and fair recovery from this terrible pandemic, which indeed is actually now the, the theme of, of this conference that we're all attending today. And so in that respect, what we did is uh, we didn't do what, um, what was being done in capitals, institutions around the world, which was very much focused on what's the scientific need of the now of today. And indeed, I mean, there's only so much capacity that governments have uh, to be thinking about things a year in advance. So in the Deputy Secretary General's wisdom, she's challenged us to think about not what the needs were a year ago when this was commissioned, but what are the needs today? And so we underdid a systematic process engaging hundreds of people around the world, all virtually, reaching um, many, many countries, many different people. And what we ultimately led devised was 25 top-level research priorities. And the interesting thing about it is that when a year ago, when thinking about these things in this global agora, what was clear is that, yes, of course, we need new technologies, we need vaccines, we need medical countermeasures, which I think is what the science advice has been focused on very much during the response to this pandemic. But what was actually even more clear is that actually 23 of the 25 top-level research priorities are really about socioeconomic consequences, socioeconomic recovery, which actually means we need the social scientists and humanities scholars to be funded, to be doing excellent work, to be, be able to translate that work to government science advisors, to political leaders, to institutional leaders, in order to act on it and ensure a better and fair recovery. And so for some examples, one of the key things that the UN Research Roadmap for the COVID-19 Recovery highlights is that we need to figure out the consequences of the digital divide that we've seen in every country around the world. Some people have been able to make use of technologies like what we're doing today to come together. Many are excluded. And that leads not only to uh, inequality in terms of immediate participation, but also in terms of long-term outcomes. Another big theme was around mental health. Of course, this is a pandemic of a virus, but it's also a pandemic of long-term consequences. And if we think, for example, about uh, many schools around the world have been closed, children haven't been able to interact in the same way as they would have before the pandemic, this will have lasting consequences. The UN Research Roadmap for the COVID-19 Recovery was one attempt to think about them in advance and enable funders, research funders, to make investments in those spaces so that researchers could do their work and ultimately inform policy in this space. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, and thank you all for introducing. Now, you know, in the background of all your intervention, you know, it has been illustration of what's going well, what are some of the challenges, but we haven't touched on an important issue. And we have a question in the chat that reads as, what are some of the main barriers that have limited social scientists in engaging with scientists to produce science for impact? 
which is a very good question. But link it to the issue of trust in research and the misuse of science in order to spread rumor, disinformation, a situation that we see all over the world that has been, I think, at the heart of some of the challenge in resolving whether it's vaccination, whether it's knowledge about the disease, whether it's behaviors. And is social science, you know, the missing link in some of these instances? Montira, no, please. That's a great question. I think where we need more social science expertise is in the larger need for implementation research. We need to understand better where our policy actions have worked and why, and if they didn't, then why not? You know, was it a problem with the design of the intervention itself or institutional or governance conditions on the ground? A recent article from Wensing and others noted that we know that producing and sharing information isn't enough for sustained policy impact and for changing behaviors that are needed at the individual community and institutional levels. And this is going to become more important implementation science as the effects of COVID-19 continue longer than we expect. And because we know we need evidence, the guidance on mitigation strategies are likely to be changed or fine-tuned. We know that successful implementation of policy actions require effective institutions and governance that supports the uptake of, of science, sound science, objective science to inform policy. So we need to better understand how governance and institutions, the lens of economics, people's attitudes and behaviors play roles in the success and failure of policy actions. Without knowing these, we risk not being aware of or preparing for unintended consequences of policy actions like lockdowns and yeah. social distancing, for example, on our mental health, on exacerbating domestic violence, on health effects that are important but are not COVID. And social sciences fields have an important role to play in helping us to understand the institutional capacity and the ability to adapt to changing conditions on the ground that are informed by science. So trust component is critically important because of needing to understand better for mitigation strategies on COVID, for example, what is going to be acceptable by the public for compliance to behavioral changes that we know are needed for the public interest. Very good example. And, you know, it's very interesting because here from my experience and yours probably, you know, the trust issue is not only with the public. The trust issue is between scientists. And, you know, we are not speaking same language. We are not working at the same pace. We have different methodology. And often the resolution of problem needs, you know, early on this common understanding. And this is not something you get in curriculum in university or rarely do you get it. So it's all turnaround life experience. This might be an area where, you know, we are recognizing that it's needed and we don't know necessarily how to do it, but there are experiences that are run and can make it better. Yuna, you want to continue, please? Yes, I mean, well, this is um, extremely important to um, kind of know to be more interdisciplinary and also to learn how to work with stakeholders, with decision makers, because we, as you said, we all speak different languages. But the issue that I wanted to mention is also uh, 
how to explain polarization. And actually, a portion of my research is uh, showing that it's, it's not you know, all fully spontaneous, that sometimes you have uh, actually small groups that can change you know, the, the majority or those kind of polarization trends that are often they serve interest of, of some you know, particular interest groups. So I think this, this also has to be addressed. We see it in, in social media that sometimes uh, some trends are, are kind of you know, launched on, on purpose. And I think as social scientists, we have to also better understand those kind of dynamics, how kind of like small trends, how do they influence the majority or how, you know, what, what kind of dynamics are driving those uh, those changes and, and how to uh, kind of recognize it early or also how to use it for maybe kind of bringing more stability and long-term resilience. This is one of the issues. Thank you, Yona. Yes, you know, the long-term aspect Elizabeth, I'm coming to you. I'll go to Stephen after. But Elizabeth, what's from Buenos Aires, from Argentina perspective, and your broad knowledge of Latin America, how does this resonate with you? First of all, I think the first intervention of Montira mentioned the need for good data. And I think this is a key that we cannot do advising, we cannot do policy with no, not good data. And I would stress very, very much that point because inequalities in the world are also very, very much in the area of data collection and the reliability of data. I strongly believe that we have to elaborate a way in which good data is collected, but what is good data? And here comes that for different scientists and different perspectives and different paradigms will tell you different things of what the priorities are. And I think so there is one issue which has to do with the conversations within social sciences and between social sciences and the other sciences. So that's one part of our academic professional life. But there is another part which for me is very, very important. Let me just uh, put it in a rather blunt way. Feminist scholarship for the last 30 years has placed a lot of emphasis on the notion of care and the idea of caring for people as a major element of inequalities in the world insofar as women and men have very different roles and the burden of care has been mostly on women. This has not been taken into consideration at the beginning of the pandemic by policymakers. So what we find a year and a half afterwards is an enormous increase in gender inequalities, in domestic violence, in mental health problems of children, yes, but also of the women who are taking care and have triple or quadruple roles. So this indicates a problem with what is hegemonic science within the social sciences. And what the pandemic has shown is that some parts of scholarship, I'm talking about feminist scholarship in this case, I would say that probably climate change scholarship goes in the same direction, which has been marginal to the hegemonic way of understanding, have, are starting to come to the fore and are starting to take center's place. 
And insofar as this happens, I think that we will have better science and we will have also more than mitigating, changing the paradigm of inequalities. No, it's not a question of mitigating what the effects, of course, we need to mitigate, but I think that we have to transform. And the title of this session has a notion of transformation more than of mitigation. Yes, and that's where science comes very handy because it's not a science that is residing only on the bench. It's a science that can also be used for change and societal changes. Stephen, roadmap. 25 recommendation there that you put with your with your team. Don't list them, please. You know, but you mentioned in your earlier conversation that you did this in anticipation of the future. And we have one question in the chat about the future of pandemics and other events and how do they take into account, you know, differences, be it at the regional, at the country, at the population, subpopulation group. You know, modeling is quite hip. You know, we see it all over, but you know, what are the key elements that needs to be there in your opinion, if I may? This pandemic has obviously not been a very um, fair pandemic. Uh, people have been affected very differently. Uh, we're seeing actually it's multiple different kinds of pandemics happening at the same time. Well, of course, most prominently, there's uh, different pandemics being experienced across different countries, um, but even within countries, even within the wealthiest countries, there's different pandemics being experienced. And so that requires not just um, thinking about technological solutions, but also thinking about how do we implement technological solutions? How is this pandemic affecting broader society? How are the long-standing inequities and social challenges that we've been facing in societies further exacerbating and preventing us from responding to and recovering from these kind of disasters that are only inevitable to come again in the future in different ways. And so when thinking about that, it means that it does call upon a broader sense of what science advice means. And I think, for example, recognizing this importance and having this event today is important. But I think too often we see that um, social sciences are being put forward as sort of an accompaniment to natural sciences, which are uh, too often I hear are called hard sciences versus social sciences, which are sometimes characterized as soft sciences, which uh, I assure you, social sciences are uh, very hard uh, to do. The difference there, I think, though, is that some kinds of sciences can offer what looks to be very precise indications or simple prescriptions. But of course, they're never actually that simple. Even the amazing COVID-19 vaccines, for which we're so for those who are able to access in the world, are so lucky to have access. There's so many people who, who can't because we haven't figured out global supply chains. We haven't figured out ways of doing equitable sharing around the world priority setting. We haven't figured out the politics of vaccination or around how to communicate about risks and benefits of these things. How do we ensure that different uh, population groups, even within very privileged contexts, are able to make full use of these technologies? Those are social questions which, uh, which are messy because people are messy, societies are messy. And that's actually part of the strength of social science. So it makes it sound, um, I sometimes I hear people referring to it as soft or sometimes even fluffy, but actually it's that complexity and that embracing of the messy, which is often what gives the power to social science because life is not as simple as creating an app and solving all of our problems through a growing number of apps. Even if we like apps, and I think some of them are great, 
we still need people to use them, to trust them, to recommend them to their friends, to then when they get, let's say, alerts on apps, to then decide to act on them and do what they should to understand what it means. So all of that's to say is uh, what's clear is um, that as we look at this pandemic and see it's being experienced differently in different populations, we do need to take a rigorous social scientific approach to better understand these issues and then ensure that that advice can be made using informing policy, even if it is sometimes looks a little messy. But I think that will help ensure that we're not accidentally implementing things that are deceptively simple, but not actually going to work. In your opinion, you're all expert. You all have experience in the field. You all have experience into policy-related work, you know. And many of what you have been describing has been seen in other sectors. You know, I think of agricultural science and, you know, the Green Revolution at the beginning of the 60s. The technology was there. What was missing was the extension service support and the adaptation to various contexts. And still today we are struggling, you know, with people that are starving and it has been going downward in the wrong direction for the last five, six years. So the learning that took place in agriculture that is still, you know, messy and trying to get resolved is very similar to what we're describing, you know, with some of the health or even the climate impact. In your experience, how can we make sure that the policy, whatever is their level, at the working level, at decision level, you know, are hearing about those subtlety? Because, you know, you walk into a minister office and you tell it's complicated, you know, the attention meter goes low. So how do we communicate this very rapidly? I give you one minute each. Stephen? Ultimately, it's about people. And if these types of natural disasters are going to be increasingly common in light of human accelerated climate change and the way that we're living and such. If it's all about people, we need to better understand people and we need to come to turn and meet people on their own grounds and respecting where they're coming from, their views, their priorities and values. And so it is complex and uh, your point's a good one about that's when the attention meter goes way down, but actually it's simple. It's about people. And the good news is politicians and political leaders, they get that because their business is the business of people. So if we bring that advice in, in those terms, then I think not only does it then emphasize the science of people, which is very much the social sciences and humanities, but it also is the simple common denominator that unites sort of what we're all here focused on and what political leaders are focused on. Thank you. I'm sorry for having put you on the spot. I'll go to Mantira and then Elizabeth and I'll conclude with Yona. So Mantira. Yes, and I fully agree with Stephen. I think that uh, the role of social scientists is really important in systems-based transdisciplinary science by grounding our knowledge production and translation of it in the societal context. What does this problem mean? for us across economic, environmental, and social domains? How does it affect our everyday lives at work, at school, for our pocketbooks? And in one sense, in terms of what I mentioned before about a major barrier to considering integrated issues like climate, health, and equity together is the policy stubbornness that we face in that our policy actions are siloed, but perhaps one way to help break that down could be also a more equal engagement of stakeholders, including those from the most vulnerably affected communities um, through strengthening leadership 
of women and of youth. And so that more equal engagement does make the policy process could make it more messy, as we've said, but I think that inclusivity, meaningful inclusivity is really what we need to explore further. And I think the shift towards more localization and engaging with local partners on the ground um, that I've seen in many more announcements for research solicitations is moving in that direction. And I think we have to be resigned to at least working together differently. Thank you. Elizabeth. I would say that the key word is co-production. We know co-production in science and technology research, but co-production going beyond that. The outcome, well-being of people, cannot only be the role of some top-down measures, scientists telling governments do this, governments telling people do this. This will never work. The idea, what I want to say is that science is one type of knowledge, the knowledge that we do, but it is people have their knowledge and politicians, especially during election times, have their priorities and their knowledge that may at times go not in the same direction as scientists. And there are other stakeholders in general. So the idea is that the outcome has to be designed as a co-production, not as measures that have to be implemented. We have seen, this is an example from uh, squatter settlements and poor neighborhoods in Argentina and elsewhere in Latin America, and I imagine in other parts of the world, that when you have uh, community management, including social scientists, health scientists, in the design of the community measures to be taken, things work much better than if there is a policy that comes from the top down. So I think that we have to rethink this notion and amplify the notion of co-production. Thank you very much for this intervention, Elizabeth. And uh, Yona? Yeah, I think I, I want to again kind of bring the attention to inequalities and the system resilience. So my research has shown that inequalities interact strongly with, uh, with resilience in a way higher inequality undermines uh, resilience. And we have also seen it in the re results of the COVID pandemic that countries, like more unequal countries with uh, kind of not publicly available health sector and also with uh, without social security system, those countries suffered more. And I think this is a lesson that we should learn that sort of we are on the same board and we have to yeah, build a system that will be capable to deal with those future uncertainties and, and shocks that can be expected. Thank you very much. Now, you know, it's the magic wand question. You're in front of a global audience. You are used to speak language of science and policy. We have a pandemic. We have climate change. Those are two topics. I'll ask you to stick around that. You have the magic wand. What is the one thing that you tell the audience that you should have done better? I give you 30 seconds to think about it and ask you to speak to our audience about, you know, this one thing that you would do better if you were in the driver's seat in order to resolve these global issues that are slow and fast burning long-term 
journey when it comes to science and policy change. Who wants to jump in? We have four minutes left, and I think it's a nice challenge for you. Yona. Yeah, I think that the magic word for me is human agency. It's kind of recognizing the agency um, that we have and actually uh, what we can do. I think many people don't realize how they can affect the, the system and what they can do. And we still think about kind of our own interests. So I think this is like one of the keywords, like human agency and, and use it and recognize the power Thank that you. we have. Thank you. Who wants to jump in second? I can go ahead. Follow up with what uh, Ilona said because I think that human agency that is recognizing that people are not dumb, that people will work towards the well-being of themselves and of others, and perhaps one of the things that we should have done much better is to listen, to listen to what different communities, different types of societies had to say regarding ways of handling the pandemic. And Thank we you. have not listened enough. Very savvy, Elizabeth. Montira, 30 seconds, please. I would say a systems-based understanding. And this is based on understanding that activities in and outside of the health sector contribute to climate change and at the same time affect health. So based on that understanding, that invites in uh, cross-disciplinary research, knowledge generation, and how we can work with policymakers to affect positive change that is sustainable and that is acceptable by the public over time. Thank you. Stephen Offman. I'd say uh, around the world that uh, we could have done better in recognizing that government action affects different people differently. And so we have to think about uh, fairness in designing interventions. And second, we've generally not done as good enough anticipating future knowledge needs. We've uh, become uh, susceptible to the tyranny of the urgent, and we don't have enough mechanisms that allow us to be thinking about those future needs before they arise. Thank you very much. Elizabeth, Mantira, Stephen, Yona, thank you for your contribution this morning in this session where not only have we brought forward what social science can do and how social science and thinking, we have just been talking about good science. And that's about the backgrounder that we have at INCSA, I believe, in order to provide sound advice from the work that we are conducting in the field, in the labs, in order to make the world better. I take on the word of savviness of Elizabeth. We have to be also humble and sometimes listen much better to what is going on in the field with the people. People don't live their life in compartment. They live their life globally. So we aim to have you know, answers that cover different aspects and makes it better. And that's quite complicated. We have been talking of climate change and COVID without talking mask, without talking vaccine, without talking adaptation. That's fantastic. We have been talking about human. I want to thank, you know, Peter Glockman and Rémi Quirion for their leadership at INSA and all the collaborators, the partner that has made this conference possible. I wish you all the best. It has been a pleasure to be with you from Ottawa, where IDRC is located. Bye-bye and thanks to everyone.
The International Network for Government Science Advice is the leading global network for those interested in the dynamics of research-informed public policy making. For more content, news and opportunities from the Science Policy Interface, join the INGSA network for free at ingsa.org. That's ingsa.org. And join us again soon for more great minds and great conversations. Thank you.